Tim's going to come and read scripture and pray for us this morning. And after he reads scripture and prays, then uh, our children will be dismissed for children's church. And the ushers will come and take up this morning's offering. All right, our scripture reading this morning will be from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I have brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened at Shittim and Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God, for, for, excuse me, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and so we ask that you forgive us when we forget about your goodness the good things we see you do in scripture, the good things we've seen you do in our own lives. God, we fail to remember those things many times and become rebellious, but God, you are always faithful to us. And not only that, Lord, but you tell us what obedience looks like through your word. And so God, thank you for that gift. So God, help us to do justice righteously, to love kindness righteously, and to walk humbly with you in a righteous way. Well, as I ask in Jesus' name, amen. And the kids can be dismissed for children's church.
Thanks, guys. Did a great job this morning. We're glad you're learning and that you're using your talents to serve the Lord as well. I want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. And I want to ask you to stand with us again this morning in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 24, I'll read the first 28 verses. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us then, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming unto the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake, verse 10. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Verse 21. For then... There will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Father, we... Acknowledge that you're the sovereign God. And Lord, you've determined the menu this morning. You know what our diet needs. And so, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would be so gracious to help us 
ingest this food. And Lord, in doing so, that you might grant us to be sustained in the midst of a world where we're weary and tried, tempted. Lord, that you might even grant some spiritual growth, some growth spurts amongst us, Lord, as we take in your holy word. And Lord, use this word to open the eyes of the blind who cannot see the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. To my right and your left, you'll notice the house that's been leveled out here. We had that done this week just for this sermon, I hope you know. Uh, not actually. It's been in the making for a while. What if it was your house that you went to later today after the church and found out your house had been leveled? Well, it'd be a terrible thing. And you might say to yourself, well, it's not the end of the world. What if it was God's house? What if it was this building we came to this morning and came expecting to get out of our vehicles and enter this place and, and this place was leveled to the ground? Well, it would be upsetting, to say the least. But we might say to ourselves, but it's not the end of the world because we know the church is not the building, it's the people. In verses 1 through 2, Jesus made a prediction about the destruction of God's house, God's temple in Jerusalem, that it would be completely leveled. He was leaving the temple. He had just spoken about the desolation of Jerusalem back in chapter 23, verse 38. And now he says to them, as the disciples are saying, look, look at the building, look at the temple, how impressive it is. And Jesus says to them, one of these days is coming a time well, this whole place is going to be leveled. This temple is going to be leveled. In fact, all of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so Jesus' prediction leads to the disciples' questions. Because the disciples, when they think about Jerusalem being leveled and God's temple being destroyed, the place under the old covenant anyway, where you would go for the sins to be at least temporarily passed over. Now the temple is going to be destroyed for them, that would seem like the end of the world. And so they have questions, and there's two questions comes up in verse 3. One of the questions is, when will these, the signs of this, king, of this take, take place? When, what will be the signs that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to take place? When are these things going to happen? And the second question you'll notice in verse 3, tell us when will these things be, if you look at the end of verse 3, and what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? Their questions are questions, and that's important. They see it as one question. They see the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world all as one question. If Jerusalem's destroyed, then the end of the world must be at hand. But as we unfold the passage of Scripture and as Jesus answers this, you're going to find there's actually, he's, answering, he's going to answer two questions. Because the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70, and of course the end of the world are not the same events. 
But as the destruction of Jerusalem takes place, it's a sign of the beginning of the end. So let me share two points with you about this passage of Scripture. It's a debated passage of Scripture. There's a lot of ways people could land on how to interpret that, but I'm going to preach it the way I feel it ought to be preached. Number one, the signs of the times are the beginning of the end. The signs of the times are the beginning of the end. We hear people talk all the time about the signs of the times. Well, the signs of the times are the beginning of the end. My wife and I were watching a documentary last night about September 11th and the buildings that were destroyed on September 11th. And you can just recall the devastation. And you look at this picture here and it looks like something from some movie that was made, but, but it's actually September 11th, 2001, right? And when we saw the towers come down for those who are living at that time, and we uh, might have said to ourselves, what in the world's going on? I was in seminary at the time and Dr. Moeller got up in chapel and said, and there's another plane just hit the Pentagon. And my heart just kind of sank. It's like, I thought to myself, what in the world is going on? And I imagine many people thought to themselves, could this be it? <laughs> is this the end of all things? Is this the end of the world? What I want you to look at and notice Jesus' response to the disciples here is he's going to say that these are the beginning. This is not yet the end. This is the beginning of the end. When we see these things happen, like September 11th, it's to point us to the fact this is, this is just the beginning of the end. So there's several signs of the times that are beginning of the end, and one of those is international hostility and wars. We see that in verse 6, don't we? If you look at your Bible and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, a verse that we've heard many times in our lifetimes, verse 7 for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This characterizes how life will be in the world near the time of the end. Jesus is answering his question. What will be the signs of, the, of your coming at the end of the age? Well, prior to Jesus coming back at the end of the world, the end of all things, there's going to be increasing international hostility and wars. A lot of people who are post-millennial believing that the church is going to usher in the kingdom of God, very, very optimistic view of the millennial kingdom, changed their view when World War I happened. And then World War II followed that. A second sign of the times that are just the beginning of the end is the natural disasters. You look in verse 7, the last part of verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Last night they were telling us about the, giving an update about the coronavirus and the uh, cruise ship Diamond Princess, in which there's 355 people now infected on that cruise ship. There's been 1,666 deaths from the coronavirus and now the, as of last night, 69,200 confirmed cases. And yet this pales in comparison to something like the Black, Black Plague in centuries past. These are, the, the coronavirus is the beginning of the end. 9-11 is the beginning of the end. 
Then there's persecution in verse 9. If you look at your Bible in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Persecution of believers is a sign of the times. We were talking in Sunday school class this morning, the Casey Griffiths class, and they were talking about how some in the family and his family have been reading the voice of the martyrs and how so many were executed, especially prior to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And even before that, centuries before that, in the period of the early church, there was persecution, and certainly we see it today. Someone I mentioned in class as well, as I saw it this week about the uh, pastor from Nigeria, Lawan Admini, Ademi, I think I have a picture of him, and uh, in January 6th, and as a lot of us were doing whatever we do, you know, after New Year's is over and trying to get our New Year's resolutions going on, he's been arrested, he's a pastor, and, uh, and shortly after that he's forced by Boko Haram to, to uh, a militant Muslim group to be on a video and right after that video was over, this man's head was cut off. And this happened a little over a month ago. The signs of the times are beginning to the end. Um, and these things happen all the time. Persecution, well, things like that happening there, that's normal Christianity, brothers and sisters. That's normal Christianity. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It flies in the face of the prosperity gospel, does it not? Health and wealth and prosperity. Tell that to somebody who just lost their daddy in Nigeria who was preaching the gospel. That he didn't have enough faith. Persecution characterizes the beginning of the end. And if you notice, it says in verse 9, I want you to call your attention to the end of verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. All nations. The United States is included in that. All nations will persecute believers. It's happening on some level, but it will continue to happen. This is just the beginning I say, preacher, I'm really feeling uplifted this morning. You're really lifting up my soul. I want to remind you, God's in charge in the midst of all of this. And we will see that. But fourthly, there's false converts falling away. That's a sign of the times. Apostasy. False converts fa falling away. Look at verse 5. And verse 5 says... For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they lead many astray. Verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many, the love of many Christians for one another, the love of many Christians for Christ, the love of many will grow cold. Last night I just happened to be looking at something on social media that a pastor friend of mine who pastors near a university had posted about 
uh, two guys named Rhett and Link, and I don't know much about them. Maybe some of you do. They said if you're under 30 years old, you might know who they are, so maybe some of you do. I don't know. But these guys were once very big part of Campus Crusade for Christ, leaders in it, and now they've come out in the last few days and said they're, they're no longer Christians. And of course, not long ago, we heard about Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Now he says, I'm kissing Christianity goodbye. And I read not long ago about one of my favorite Christian groups from a few years ago, Caveman's Call, and their lead singer, Derek Webb. I was saddened to find out that he's saying, I'm no longer a Christian. Don't believe this stuff anymore. This is just the beginning of the end. These are high-profile believers who said they were believers. And notice how I worded this carefully. False converts falling away. Each of these examples that I just mentioned, they will say, no, I'm a Christian and I'm no longer a Christian. But the Scripture tells us in 1 John 2 that they went out from us because they were not of us. And such will characterize the time before Christ returns, an increasing apostasy. Take heed lest you fall. D.A. Carson points out that maybe our confusion about people who profess to know Jesus and seem like they're true believers and now they don't want to be believers anymore and our confusion about that maybe goes along with our confusion about conversion. What truly is to, does it mean to be converted? Verse 13, look at what your Bible says in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saved people, true, true believers endure to the end, they persevere. And our mix-up about conversion and evangelicalism, often in Baptist churches like ours, is to be converted is to bow our head and say a quick prayer and get some fire insurance and then go about our business not ever worrying about growing in Christ or walking with the Lord. But oh, I remember when that person got saved, they had tears in their eyes. And yet conversion is not about a sincere moment. A sincere moment of decision. Conversion is a changed heart by the Lord Jesus Christ that continues throughout that person's lifetime. There may be ebbs and flows. There is such thing as prodigals, but they will return. So for those of you who think right now, what about my son or what about my granddaughter or what about this? Just know that we pray. And with open arms, our Father was ready to welcome those who return. We pray. We don't know if conversion has taken place or not, but let us be very careful not to stamp the approval upon someone and say, yes, they're saved, I know they're saved, I was there when they were saved, and yet that person's certainly not acting like it, certainly has no love for Christ. You're not doing that person any good to assure them of something they don't seem to have at all. So false converts fall away, apostasy characterizes this time. Fifthly, false teachers, of course. False teachers, verse 5 for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. In verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And we see this repeated again at the end of, the at the end of these verses I read this morning. I'll come to in a few moments. False teachers. As one commentator says, there's no false teacher comes up to you and says, how about a hunk of heresy? How'd you like to eat a hunk of heresy today? 
Nobody's going to stand. I'm not going to stand up here if I was a false teacher and say, hey, how would y'all like to have some heresy this morning? It's not how they work. They creep in, the book of Jude says. They creep in because they're creeps. They creep in amongst the church unawares. They will characterize the end times and get us the beginning of the end. Brothers and sisters, we're surrounded much more by false teaching than what we realize. And sixthly, and more positively, a sign of the times of the end is the worldwide preaching of the gospel. In the midst of all of this, all this negativity that we've talked about this morning, all this that Jesus has talked about, you're not guaranteed your health. You're not guaranteed your wealth. You're not guaranteed to be exempt from famine or war or disease or persecution or all these things or false teachers trying to deceive you. But one thing you can be guaranteed on, the gospel will continue to go out into the world. Look at what verse 14 says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. So what's that tell us we ought to give our lives to? Our bank accounts or our homes that are going to be leveled and destroyed. The one thing that's going to continue positively and increasingly so is the advancement of the gospel. Notice what your Bible says. These are the, these are the beginning you know, when a woman goes into to labor. I know all about this. I'm just teasing. Right? When a woman goes into labor into her birth pains, there's pain followed by increasing pain. And Jesus says about these things that we've just read, this is the beginning of birth pains. You see that in verse 6 at the end of the, end of the verse? Actually, it wasn't verse 6, but it's in there somewhere. These are in verse 8. All these are the beginning of birth pains. The end of verse 6 is, but the end is not yet. You see that? I don't know how many times people say uh, when something happens in the world, something on the news, you know, it's a tragic worldwide event, and people will say, you think this could be it? You think Jesus would come back in our lifetime? I know he could come back in our lifetime. I don't know if this is it or not. But the fact is, what you just saw on television, as tragic as it is, that's the beginning of birth pains. That's what it says. These are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus, I believe, is saying that because he doesn't want us to get distracted by the birth pains from what we're supposed to be doing in relation to preaching the gospel. The signs of the times are the beginning of the end, but secondly, I want to share with you, things will get worse before they get better. Things will get worse before they get better. Those are the beginning of birth pains. Things will get worse before they get better. The beginning of birth pains is followed by hard labor. Hard labor before the joy of the newborn. And to explain the analogy, it's hard labor before the joy of the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. When all these things will be done away with, but there's hard labor before that. Things will get worse before they get better. And in the midst of all of these labor pains that Jesus talks about, he, he, I believe Jesus was looking around and saying, you can see these things now, disciples. 
And you'll see these things after I leave. But among those, there was one intense, particularly intense labor pain that Jesus points out to, and it's found in verse 15. Look at your Bible. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in a holy place, let the reader understand. What is it that Jesus is speaking about here? Some believe that Jesus is speaking about an abomination that will occur by the Antichrist during a great tribulation period right prior to Jesus' return. Well, something like that could happen, but that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. In the book of Daniel, it talks about an abomination of desolation. And so he says, let the reader understand. Those of you that read the book of Daniel, let you let, understand. You already know something like that already did happen. When a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes took a pig and went into the Jewish temple when he was ransacking the Jerusalem back then, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, on God's altar. He desecrated the temple. Let the reader understand. You remember that that happened? There's coming something else that's going to be worse than that. And what he's talking about is the desolation of Jerusalem. What he's talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, Luke chapter 21 is, a parallel, is one of the parallel texts to this where we see it in more explicitly clear. Luke chapter 21, verse 20 says this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Verse 24 of Luke 21. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles in the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. So when Jesus says, hey, do you want to know, want to know what a sign of the end is? One of the particular intense labor pains is when, not much long from when Jesus was talking in AD 70, is when Jerusalem is just leveled completely. But don't think that's the end of the world. That's the beginning of labor pains. That's one of the particular intense labor pains. But there's more coming. When Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, the people indeed, as it explains on here, they ran and some of the Christians, it's believed, ran to a place called Pella to escape just a couple of years before the Romans finally came under the leadership of Titus and destroyed all of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. It was so bad in Jerusalem that ancient historians like Josephus and others record how women ate their own children because of the siege of Jerusalem. It was a horrible time. But it was not the end of the world. It was just the beginning. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples who would experience that after he had died and risen again, he would say, when that happens, you remember. You remember and you, you, you get out of Jerusalem, but understand things are going to get worse before they get better. That's, that's a sign that I'm going to be coming. So that particular intense labor pain of the destruction of Jerusalem is followed by intense hard labor. There'll be unprecedented suffering. Look at verse 21. For then, when that happens, not thousands of years later, not 2,000 years later, for then, right then, there will be great tribulation when that happens. So when... The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. It began a period of great tribulation that we've been in ever since for the past 2,000 years. That does not mean that what we see in Revelation chapter 7 through 16 
It doesn't mean that, that could, there could be a particular seven year of tri tribulation like people have written books about and been so popular in the last few years. That could happen. Or it could be that Revelation chapter 7 through 16 is included, is being described, is describing the history in which we live. That's possible as well. Either way, what you need to see here in your Bible in verse 21, it says there will be great tribulation then, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Some, would, some have tried to say that he's still talking about there the destruction of Jerusalem. <laughs> but it says, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days, verse 22, had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. In other words, the wars and rumors of wars that he had spoken about earlier, the intensity of it increasing, the famines, the earthquakes, the natural disasters, the diseases, the persecution, if those days had not been cut short, man, humanity would wipe itself completely out. You know, we think about the threat of nuclear war, and uh, especially when I was growing up, you thought the Cold War and so forth. I remember planes flying overhead and I was so scared. I was like, oh, I wonder if that's it. One for getting ready to nuke the world, you know. If those days had not been cut short, nobody would be left alive. There will be unprecedented suffering, intense suffering. And there will be an unmistakable return, amen. When I was at, um, I was pastoring at a church in southern Indiana. I was a single guy at the time, so I was living in the, I was living in the church in a Sunday school room for about a year. Churches are spooky at nighttime. I remember one day I was up and I was standing, I think I might have shared this here before, I was standing out by the road or inside the foyer of the church looking out at the road and this guy came walking down the street and he saw me. And he looked kind of wild-eyed, and he walked into the church and opened the door. And I don't remember what I said. I don't know if I said, do you know Christ or anything like that. Uh, but he said, I am Christ. And I, if that's, I imagine you know who he is then. <laughs> and, I, and I said, oh, oh, you are. <laughs> um, and then I talked to him for a minute. I don't know what I said, you know. And then he said, well, I'm the Antichrist. Okay, you're not the Christ, but you're the Antichrist. All right. I remember, I don't remember how that conversation went. The rest of it, I tried to share the gospel with him, I assume, but I remember not long after that, I seen him, I was standing there again one day and looking out the door, front door for some reason, and, and I saw him coming down the sidewalk again, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't want him to see me. But it was too late. He looked, he saw me, and he went like this. Like that. I thought, well, Antichrist is a little closer maybe to the description here. False Christ, false prophets that are spoken about in the following verses are not going to walk up to you and go, how about a big hunk of heresy? Satan disguises himself like an angel of light.
And so, as Charles Quarles points out, if somebody has to tell you about the return of Christ, Christ has not returned. There's going to be people telling you that Christ has returned, that he's here. Come and see him. If somebody has to tell you, come and see Jesus, he's returned, he's here, don't believe it, he's not returned. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. So if somebody tells you, Jesus is here, Jesus showed up, he's back, come on. It's a false prophet. We don't hear about too many people claiming to be Christ nowadays or Jesus nowadays, but it's happened. What was it, Moon? The guy Moon claimed to be Christ, and others in history have claimed sort of the same type of things. And people follow them. Jesus said, if somebody says Jesus is here, don't believe it. He's not. If you have to be told Jesus is here, come and see him. He's not here. If somebody attempts to use miracles to convince you that Jesus has arrived, and they're using miracles and signs and wonders, Christ has not returned. Look at verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If somebody says, Jesus is here and he's a ways off and, and it's secret, you really can't know that he's here, but he's here, Christ has not returned. Jehovah's Witnesses prophesied that Jesus would return in the year 1914. And when it didn't happen, based on their calculations, they said, well, he appeared secretly. He, he did return. He, re, he returned secretly. And now he's reigning right now. If somebody says Christ has returned secretly or at a distance, Christ has not returned. Look at verse 25. See, or verse 26, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. If the glory of Jesus is not displayed for everyone to see, then Christ is not returned. Because his return is going to be un un unmistakable. Everyone's going to know about it when he returns. Look at the Bible in verse 27. It's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Unmistakable. Everybody's going to see it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if somebody comes along and saying Jesus is here, or they're doing signs and wonders to convince you that Jesus is here, or they got the next false teacher telling you this, don't believe it. You'll know it when he comes. It's going to be as unmistakable as when you see a buzzard out, according to verse 28, gathering around some dead possum or some dead skunk out there. That's what he's talking about in verse 28. You see them circling around that corpse, it's unmistakable that something's dead right there. You can't miss it. You're not going to be able to miss the return of Christ. So don't be fooled. I feel a great burden in my heart. 
especially last night, and I was thinking about this, to, to plead with you, church. These warnings are real about falling away, about false teachers, people being duped by these things. How are believers, how are we, this is the application, how are we as believers to be prepared for the end of the world? How are we to prepare? Two ways that Jesus singles out. First of all, it's in verse 4. Notice what he says. See that no one leads you astray. So one way to be prepared is see, see to it. That you are not led astray. That's number one about how to be prepared for the end of the world. See that you're not led astray. That's what Jesus is concerned about. All through this text, see that you're not led astray. And that could, of course, be by circumstances or persecution and so forth, but primarily he has in mind the false teaching that flourishes so much and is so deceptive that if possible, even the elect could be deceived, if possible. Notice what he said in verse 24, the end of it. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If the two words, if possible, were not there, then our theology would be quite different. But praise God, they are. It's impossible for God's chosen, for God's elect to be led astray, to fall away. But when he says that, Jesus says that at the end of verse 24, if possible, even the elect. What, it's telling, what Jesus is telling us here right now today is that the intensity and the deceptiveness of the allurement of the false teachers is strong. It's going to be so strong and appealing and sound so good to you and make sense to you logically that if possible, it could even lead away the elect they come in wolves and sheep's clothing. They creep in houses and they lead people astray. They creep in churches like ours through the pulpit or through Sunday school classes or small groups or conversations you have with people that work profess to know Christ or on television and radio or books that you pick up at Walmart and they, it's supposedly a Christian author and you don't know anything about them so you read it and you swallow it whole and you don't realize you're being duped. So see that you're not led astray. How are we to see that we're not led astray? We look at other parts of Scripture and we find out the way that we see to it that we're not led astray is we need discernment. We need discernment. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 8 says this, But understand this, in the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households, Avoid these people. Use discernment. Protect your family, dads. That's your responsibility. 
Use discernment. If we're to see that we're not led astray, we need the Word of God. We need Scripture. And we need prayer. Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. Time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You need the Word of God. The time is coming, Paul told Timothy. Preach the Word, timid Timothy. Preach the Word. What the people need is the Word. They need the Gospel. Which what means if we're to see to it that we're not led astray, is we need the preaching of the Word. And no, this is not a sermon about job security for myself. This is about soul security. You need the Word of God. You need to preach it to yourself. You need to preach it to your children. You need the word. As Jude says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the coming of Christ. So we need the word. We need prayer. Can't neglect these things. And brothers and sisters, you need the church if you're to see to it that you're not led astray. You need the church. Where we assemble to encourage and exhort one another. We don't forsake the assembly of ourselves so so much as the manner of some is. But we gather together, encourage and exhorting one another. And so much the more as the day is drawing near. So much the more. Even more so as the day is drawing near. You need the church. Not just the preaching of the word. You need to be in the church where you know believers and they're praying for you. And you're studying the word together and holding one another accountable. You need the word of God. You need prayer. See to it that you're not led astray. And secondly, Jesus' concern is see to it that you're not alarmed. (laughs) See to it that you're not alarmed. Jesus is talking about famine and disease and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and persecution and false teachers and false believers. And then he says in verse 6, look at it. Verse verse 6, the middle of it, see that you're not alarmed. Why does he say see that you're not alarmed? Notice the next phrase of verse 6. You looking at your Bible? See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. This must, the must is important. This must take place. It's not outside of God's control. This must take place. So see that you're not alarmed. The world is not out of control. It must take place. This is God's plan. These things must take place. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. How are they going to be cut short? Who's going to cut them short? God is. God is. 
The world's not out of control, folks. So see that you're not alarmed to the point that you're holed up in your house, taking care of your own, and you're not consumed with the Great Commission. See that you're not led astray. See that you're not alarmed. The world is not out of control. He says in verse 25, See, I've told you this beforehand. I told you it was going to happen. Don't be surprised and alarmed to the point that you're frozen in fear. See that you're not alarmed. The world's not out of control. And secondly, the mission has not changed. And we go back to verse 14. And we see that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. One of the concerns I believe that Jesus has in this passage of Scripture is that the disciples, when they see the destruction of Jerusalem, won't be like some of the Thessalonians were if you read First and Second Thessalonians. One of the problems was they thought Jesus' return was so imminent that they quit working. They were just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back at any second. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We've got work to do. And that work is the Great Commission. The gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed in the midst of all of this. Amen? Give yourselves to that. In Acts chapters 1, remember, it's the picture of the disciples, these, these disciples... And they say to Jesus, Lord, is it now? Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know signs or times when this is going to happen. That's basically what he says in verse 7. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. What's he saying, boys? Don't, don't get all wrapped up in, 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 in trying to determine when these things are going to happen and when the kingdom is going to be restored. What you need to be consumed with is being witnesses for me to the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't waste the time that you have left in this world, Christian, and being consumed with things lesser than what's eternal. Be consumed with the Great Commission. Be consumed with giving your money, with giving your time and your efforts to making Christ known in this world. That's the only thing that really matters. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That means is sometimes, or every time really, when you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus, you're going to have to walk, cross what uh, Rico Tice calls the pain line. And you're going to have to come to the point with somebody and you're talking with them and then you're going to have to ask them a question. It's going to be very awkward for you and probably awkward for them too. If you're really going to get to the heart of the matter, you're going to have to say to somebody, Something like this. And this is usually the question that I use. Are you sure if you died, you go to heaven? <laughs> that, to me, that just, that just gets right to it. I mean, I don't go up to people I just, as soon as I meet them and a stranger and say, hey, do you, you know if you died, you go to heaven? I don't do that. Wouldn't be a bad thing if I did. But somewhere in the midst of that conversation, if you're really going to love people, 
the Spirit's leading you. Do you know if you died, you'd go to heaven? That, that just gets to it. And then listen to the response. Listen to what they say. And I want to ask you that this question this morning. Are you sure if you died, when you die, because you're going to, unless Jesus comes first, are you sure when you die you're going to go to heaven? We serve a holy God that made this world. We have sinned and rebelled against him. And the only way we can be made right with God is because by God's grace, Jesus came into this world the first time. He's coming again, but he came into the world the first time and took our sin dead on the cross. He took our punishment for us. And if we believe that, if we trust in him and repent and turn, turn to him, the Bible says we'll be saved. Brothers, you can share that in about as much time as I just shared. It took me about 25 seconds maybe to share the gospel right then. And you can say something like this, and I'm going to ask you. I'm asking you right now. Do you believe what I've shared this morning? Do you believe these things are true? Sometimes I'll come back and say to people, I'll say, well, you know, the devil believes it too. <laughs> the devil's not going to heaven. He believes Jesus died and rose again. He believes he's a sinner. Why ain't he going to heaven then? He believes. Well, he don't want to follow Jesus. He wants to keep on doing his own thing. So let me ask you again. Do you believe this so much that you want to stop right now and you want to turn from your sin and you want to start following the Lord Jesus Christ? And brothers, that's not just a conversation for us to have with people outside these walls, and it is. But it's something, it's, it, this is something you need to deal with right now. Are you sure if you died, when you die, you're going to go to heaven? Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready right now to do that? Are you ready? You believe what I've said? Are you ready right now to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? So with every, every head not bowed and every eye open, I'm, 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 I'm doing what the word says here. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now. And share it with us. Share it with us. Let's pray.